Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. I'm your host, Terry Yuan, and this series of episodes on beauty and lifestyle is sponsored by Masami, a premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. Masami is good for you with no bad ingredients and is vegan and cruelty-free. Masami's ultra-hydrating formula leaves your hair healthy, shiny, and manageable. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Aditi Mayer, the creative behind Addie May, a sustainable fashion blog exploring the ties between style, sustainability, and social justice. We speak with Aditi today about the intersection of gender, race, and class in fast fashion and how conscious living can make consumption safer, more ethical, and sustainable for individuals, communities, and for the planet. Welcome, Aditi. Thank you so much. I would like to start with what you wrote in one of your blogs, which is how you would like to wear your values. Can you please explain what that means? So I had my start in the sustainable fashion space um, in around 2013 when there was a big factory collapse in Bangladesh called the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And so in this instance, um, there was this big eight-story factory producing for some of the biggest brands in our world today. And the day before the factory actually collapsed, they found structural cracks and the building was ordered to evacuate. Um, but there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders. And if you think about the demographic that often makes garment workers, they don't often have the luxury of foregoing a day's salary. So because of that upper management, workers were forced to come back and complete orders. And the next day, um, the factory collapsed, killing over 1,100 workers and injuring over 2,500. And I often like to call it like the biggest industrial homicide of our time, because really understanding all that happened leading up to this disaster, it becomes clear like it could have been addressed earlier. And so at this time, I was just about starting my college career, and I've always had a passion for visuals and aesthetics. Before I was into fashion specifically, it was very much photography, more so fashion photography. And as I started college, I simultaneously ended up starting a blog, which was a sustainable fashion blog, which, to be honest, I had a very elementary understanding of what sustainability was. But what I did know is from the instance of Rana Plaza that Fashion was an industry that was disproportionately affecting people of color globally, especially women of color. So my conception story with my blog and my journey in sustainable fashion is kind of seeing fashion as a vehicle to explore my own ethics, my own positionality in systems of power, systems of oppression. And yeah, so when I say wearing my values, it's kind of looking at fashion as a way to unpack all these systems in our world today. Most of your work is really around the term decolonizing fashion and exposing the value chain of how products are produced and providing some sort of ethical framework for understanding the consumer's choices that we have in what we decide to buy and what we decide to wear. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And so this concept of decolonization when you use that term in your blog, is, is it something that is accessible to people? How is it received? 
I would say it kind of depends on who my audience is. And I've come to see that I have a lot of different touch points in the ways that people discover my work. For some folks, it's my like the South Asian like part of my community, right? The people that may have found me through like South Asian platforms and like having a predominantly South Asian aesthetic. For others, it's my work in like the labor organizing sphere. So the way I often talk about decolonization, I'm very careful to contextualize how I came to have that lens within this space. When I first entered the sustainable fashion scene, as I mentioned, I had a very elementary understanding. So I always describe like my um, blog as kind of like a organic living organism in the way that it's evolved alongside my own nuanced understanding of sustainability. And so for some backstory, when I first started in this sustainable fashion scene and I started going to events in my locality, I noticed that I was often the only woman of color in the space, save for maybe the blown up images of the producers of a brand's products, right? Like Often there was these blown up black and white images of other black and brown women in overseas countries. And at that time, I don't think I really had the vocabulary. But as time went on, I, I came to realize that there was a very problematic trope happening within this space where the consumer was often this like well-off, often white consumer in the West. And the laborer was always a woman of color. And so... I started thinking about the simplified dichotomies that this movement often made about the global north and the global south, right? On one hand, we had like this global citizen in the north that had the ability to buy into a culture of global moral moralism. And then on the other hand, we had like this victim of predatory capital that needed saving by luxury fashion markets. And so I started thinking like the sustainable fashion movement, as great as it is that it's considering the social and environmental impacts of fashion, it's often positioned to be a purely capitalistic endeavor. And when we do that, we're limiting this movement for those that can afford it. And so from then on, I decided that I wanted my position in this space to really understand the history and continued stronghold of colonialism in fashion. So when I'm talking about colonialism in fashion, it's important to understand that when we're talking about labor exploitation, the ways that these systems have been created in terms of having already marginalized communities be the producers is a direct effect of colonization. When we look at like our global economy today, one that's like this neoliberal deregulated global economy, it's often that developing countries are produced for these major brands. And these developing countries are positioned in what we call the race to the bottom. The global race to the bottom means that brands are looking to where they can produce as fast as they can, as much as they can, as cheap as they can. And so that is why fast fashion is often predicated upon a vulnerable workforce and a lack of environmental standards as well. And so another thing I often like to allude to is there is a study done that looked at the supply chains of like major brands in our world today. And the supply chains for most major clothing and apparel manufacturers are literally mirroring uh, colonial trade routes 150 years ago during the height of British colonization. And so that's why I'm always trying to say like the fast fashion industry is often recreating or continuing upon exploitive systems that are tied to colonization. In terms of the intersection of gender, those who are in this workforce, the global workforce, tend to be mainly women. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there's a statistic that we make sustainable fashion organization 
put out that 80% of garment workers globally are women. Where does the U.S. labor movement fit into all of this? Are they part of the discussion to interrogate our position in sustainable fashion and fast fashion? So in terms of U.S. and our own labor laws, we actually have pretty good labor laws. And I could speak to California specifically because um, I'm based in Los Angeles in California. So I've actually been doing a lot of work in the garment sector in Los Angeles. And so I think this is actually a very apt example of how even like we create these ideas of, oh, conditions are good in the West and bad in the East. But let me tell you a little bit more about LA's garment scene. So within Los Angeles, the second biggest industry is the garment manufacturing industry, the cut and sew garment apparel industry. And so within LA, there's about 50,000 workers. And the garment industry in LA is very much an informal underground economy. And most workers are undocumented. And so this creates a landscape where labor exploitation is everywhere. Because what we have in Los Angeles, despite having laws for minimum wage, right, um, we have a piece rate. So workers are paid per piece they make as opposed to the hour. And this piece rate is often two to three cents, which means that many workers are making about $5 an hour as an average. Of course, this is not legal, but when workers do attempt to speak out, they're often threatened with deportation. And that goes back to how their identities are weaponized. And so when, whether we're talking about the intersection of gender or race or socioeconomic status, like I think wherever you go in the world and kind of look at the garment production landscape, there's going to be nuances depending on like the sociopolitical landscape. But within LA specifically, it's predominantly women and it's predominantly undocumented folks. And to see the way that those intersections play into this power dynamic between upper management and the garment workers who are kind of systemically silenced because of the vulnerabilities of their identity, that's what my work is really interested at in looking at because I feel like oftentimes the sustainable fashion movement fails to recognize how all of these systems in terms of understanding the intersections of colonization and environmental racism and all those different things play into the fashion landscape. So you said that in California, the labor laws were pretty good, but I'm, I'm guessing you mean mm -hmm. except for that piece rate wage rule. Yeah, so the piece rate is actually technically legal if the worker can be making um, at least the minimum wage through the piece rate. But the thing is, the piece rate hasn't changed in the last 20 plus years. So whereas many years ago, it was a way to kind of incentivize workers who are kind of fast on their hands to make a little more money. Now it's kind of been weaponized to kind of exploit them. Um, and so... Yeah, the piece rate in itself is legal, but the way it's being used is against a workforce that does not know their rights because they should be still making um, at least the minimum wage. And the piece rate is a way to make a little bit more money, if anything, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So um, fashion, of course, is at the intersection of consumption in, in terms of living and lifestyle. So beyond retail consumption, food consumption, et cetera. And so I see a lot of commonalities between what you just described and the experiences of workers in the food industry or in the farming industry, you know, a high proportion of undocumented workers who are being exploited. Are they in any ways trying to band together and use their collective power to influence policy? Yes, I'm very glad you bring that up. 
So there is no union or anything like that in LA of garment workers, but there is a very important organization that I've had the honor of working closely with in my work, um, which is called the Garment Workers Center, which is one of the only workers' rights center that is specific to garment workers. And so this downtown LA-based organization, um, whole goal is to organize workers. It's worker-led. Um, the full-time employees of the Garment Workers Center are more there to facilitate um, policy work, um, their expertise in law, et cetera. And so there has been a movement for the last over the over a decade almost of workers organizing uh, against brands like Forever 21, Fashion Nova, Ross. Um, and so garment workers, first and foremost, are being educated about their rights. Even if you are undocumented, you have older rights as any other worker. That's the main thing that folks need to know. And then it's understanding the specifics of how to collect um, evidence of wage theft when there are instances of that and how to take that to the labor commission where you can be, um, you know, take it to court per se. And then the other thing is looking at this from a poly policy perspective. So the Garment Worker Organization has had amazing wins in the last few months. Um, one example I could give you is that um, many workers are often owed hundreds and thousands of dollars sometimes from work from companies that have failed to pay up. Uh, we had an instance where four workers were owed $800,000 from Ross. And that wasn't an allegation. That was a case that they took to the labor court and won. But what happened was Ross said that this was um, the factory that like they weren't accountable, right? They started blaming the factory. And so um, basically Back in the 90s, there was a garment worker restitution fund created in the California budget. So when workers are owed money and they haven't been paid up, um, there is a budget to kind of like help those workers. And that had been empty for many years. But as of a few months ago, the Garment Workers Center was successful in organizing and securing $16 million in a garment restitution fund um, that started this year in 2020. And so although those are great, you know, progressions, the next steps of the garment workers in L.A. is to try and eradicate peace rate and also kind of change the legal landscape so brands are directly accountable and they won't just blame the factories instead because these factories often just shut down and then end up opening somewhere else with like slightly different name or something like that. What exactly is the relationship between advances in workers' rights in the U.S. and our ability or the pressure that brands have to advance workers' rights in other parts of the world where their manufacturing bases are located? Well, I often think of it this way. It's a global fight. Like globally, garment workers are resisting everywhere, right? And so I feel like LA is just one example of what can happen when there is a collaboration between workers organizing, um, consumers aiding in that effort in terms of organizing or assisting in their own like specific skills, and corporate accountability. The reason I think garment worker resistance is so important, no matter where we are in the world, is that at the end of the day, I don't believe corporate accountability alone will save us. I often see garment workers as the heart of this industry that can often be the whistleblowers when things are going wrong within factories. Because as consumers, first of all, I don't think the onus should be completely on consumers to feel like they need to be buying ethically, sustainably. I think we need a whole inherent shift that really questions why is it that ethics, something as simple as good working conditions is a literal alternative market, is a differentiator within the fashion landscape, you know? 
And so I think, yeah. And so when we're talking about garment workers organizing, it's also tied to larger conversations about like immigrant rights, woman rights. Um, And so, yeah, to answer your question, whether it's domestically abroad, I think the fight is very much intertwined. Um, A lot of the garment workers in LA are often very well read and understand that what happened after Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, because they really see their own parallels within their fight and what's happening abroad as well. And and so workers' rights are really sort of impacting the lever of supply. And then the demand part is the ethical fashion sustainability. So you mentioned some brands Forever 21, Fashion Nova, also in your blog, you talk about H&M. What are the practices that these brands engage in that are problematic or have engaged in that are problematic? Well, first and foremost is exploitive labor practices, you know, working with factories or centers where there is very clearly exploitation happening and not the right infrastructures in place to look at workplace safety, right? Something like the Rana Plaza factory collapse was a very important instance of understanding how structural cracks were literally identified. And, you know, there wasn't that urgency in place to have workers leave the workplace. Most recently, like about two weeks ago, there was a denim factory in India that um, killed seven people because there was a fire within this factory. And the only way to escape was a ladder through the roof. And, and this is one of the biggest denim factories in the world, right? And so I think there's very much a lack of enforcement. I think when there are major brands that definitely are profiting very well, they have millions, if not sometimes like billions in profits, they should really be looking to own their supply chain. Because the biggest thing within fashion accountability when it comes to like things going wrong is brands often blame the factory, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there needs to be more ownership and accountability in that way. And this really leads brands to have more traceability within their supply chain. Uh, Right now, supply chains are very opaque, right? From the raw material level to the finished product, most brands aren't able to identify what were the flows uh, and travels of all the material to get to the finished product. But I think if brands can make an honest effort to kind of own their supply chains, that could be a huge game changer um, and actually understanding all the flows of labor and also the environmental impact as well. This concept that brands should first own their supply chains and also that consumers should understand and interrogate to what extent they want to be ethical consumers, taking away fashion, most companies, most big companies and successful companies have in some ways or continue to exploit workers. There's Amazon, there's all the phone manufacturers. We hear stories, I don't know to what extent that they're actually validated, or factories in China where people are laboring over iPhones. What do you say when someone rebuts, well, if I'm going to be making sustainable choices in one area, let's say fashion, then what do I do about my iPhone? Does it cancel each other out? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we have to think about purity politics and I think one fault of the way, um, you know, consumers being conscious, the narrative around that is that often the onus comes completely on the consumer to really have to be super careful about about all their choices. And I don't think that is sustainable in its own sense, right? 
And that's why when I talk about the work that I do, which I have chosen to focus on the fashion industry um, as just my own personal fight, I always like to break down my work as three prong. The first one, which I think is most important to me personally, is workers' rights, building workers' rights. The second is consumer education. And consumers need to be aware of what's going on in the industry so they could demand change and also organize alongside workers. The last one is corporate accountability. There needs to be changes on a corporate level as well. But all of these three things, corporate accountability, workers' rights, and consumer education all have to work hand in hand. The impact of consumer demand is huge. Going back to what you said about Amazon, Amazon increasing their minimum wage to $15 was largely in part of consumer demand. But that was also consumer demand that was um, you know, strategically standing in solidarity with workers who were also making these demands. So you kind of see how all of those are connected, right? Like we have to see this fight as intersecting all three of those. And so when it comes to people saying like, well, I could shop ethically, but then I'm still using my iPhone. Yes, we are all navigating the structure of capitalism that say no ethical consumption under capitalism. And I think it just goes to show how our understandings of economic growth and success are often tied to someone's exploitation or the extraction of natural resources. That in itself is what colonization looks like, right? seeing how one body's economic success is tied to the direct detriment and exploitation of another. And so when I'm talking about decolonization, it's also an inherent critique of how capitalism has evolved from colonial practice, in my own opinion. Um, But yeah, I think, look, as consumers, if we were to approach this whole movement of conscious consumption with the approach of purity politics uh, no one would be anywhere, right? There's, we still have to have grace for the fact that we are navigating structures where it's very hard for us as consumers to have complete control. But at the end of the day, to be honest, I don't think it should be the onus of the consumer to have to see all these decisions through. What do you say to someone who feels that little choices that they make every day don't really add up and therefore they shouldn't make any change? What do I say to people? <laughs> That's a good question. I would say... Look, there needs to be an awareness on the consumer end. And that goes back to what I was saying before. Consumer demand goes a long way. As much as we can critique the idea of voting with their dollar, when there is critical mass behind movements like that, it does have impact. And there are instances throughout history to show that. And one of them is like, as I said before, like consumer demand against Amazon's wages for their like workers in their factories, for instance. And so I think, especially in like the advent of social media, and people kind of vocalizing their concerns um, with brands in a public forum, it has led to a accountability. I often like to allude to the fashion revolution um, campaigns online of hashtag who made my clothes, right? In April, on the anniversary of Rana Plaza, there's a huge movement of people wearing their clothes inside out, wearing it backwards to show the tag and asking brands, where did this come from? So I definitely think there has been a growth in the conversation around traceability, supply chain transparency, brands having to disclose the backstory of their brands. Like a sexy brand story is no longer just a good aesthetics. It also has to be tied to good ethics as well. What are your thoughts about branding and logos and consumers 
perhaps making the choice if they want to be ethical consumers around fashion that they don't wear brands that have visible logos with questionable practices and workers' rights and or exploitative. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different conversation around consumer culture, which I think is very interesting. Because if you think about like the Nike and the Adidas of the world, like they very much are intersecting with this idea of like, if you're able to buy these products, you're also buying into a certain class and social mobility status type thing. And so I think that's a whole different conversation that demands us to look at like for a lot of communities, consumption is a form of liberation in some sense when it comes to like economic mobility. And so my thoughts about logos per se, I think that... (laughs) Logos, it's like making people billboards for brands, right? And so, again, it goes back to the conversation of it shows how we've built this culture in fashion where what we wear is directly tied to how we are perceived in society and how, are we, how we are perceived in, like, in association to things like class. And I, I don't like consumers for it, to be honest. I think it goes back to how advertising and marketing for these major brands has often been predicated on pushing this idea of like who has more social clout by virtue of what they wear. And then that's when I'm starting to think about influencer culture. Often influencers are not wanting to see like have themselves seen twice in the same outfit because, you know, that's not like part of the aspirational image. And I think we also need to interrogate that as a consumer body is like, why do we have these understandings of what is like the more aspirational thing to do? Going back to garment production in LA, one of the biggest offenders of labor rights in LA is Fashion Nova. And in a recent piece that the LA Times or maybe it was the New York Times put out, Fashion Nova is one of the like heads at Fashion Nova talks about the reason they produce in LA is when Kim Kardashian comes in a new outfit, they want to, you know, kind of mirror that outfit and they need a fast turnaround time, which is why they produce domestically. But what they didn't talk about is like the very poor um, ethical standards they have in their own production. And so that is a very cool, not cool, but interesting intersection to look at of how we could point the finger at factories and producers of like, you know, the scale at what they're producing and the very tight timelines. But it's also important to interrogate our own consumer culture of how we've fed into this idea of constant consumption and disposability. Where does the material of the product fit into this concept of ethical fashion, like plastic and nylons and synthetics? Yeah. And so, okay, very good question. That is more like the environmental element of sustainability. A lot of my work often focus on the like social impacts, but as we know, environmental impacts are very much tied to social impacts as well. And so in terms of things like polyesters and nylons and things like that, polyester is plastic essentially, right? And when it, polyester does not break down, it just gets smaller and it creates microplastics. And in terms of the world's water supply, you know, fashion is the second largest consumer of the world's water supply. And the fashion industry is also what is polluting the ocean with microplastics larger than any other industry. And so that's when we need responsibility on the environmental end as well. There's often more industrial practices for synthetic fabrics, which are not good for the environment. And then we could look at 
that through a lens of environmental racism and really question who are the you know, communities that are most impacted by climate change and climate degradation. And so I would say that the most sustainable fabrics in fashion are often natural fibers and natural fabrics, talking about organic cotton, hemp, wool, silk. Um, and it's interesting because you'll see that like a lot of indigenous practices often, you know, looked at what their native landscapes are, what sort of resources we had, how can we build circular economies within fashion inherently. And so I think fashion needs a return to indigenous wisdom in a lot of ways of like, what are the things that are best for this planet? A big sustainable fashion activist, Celine Simon, often says it very eloquently when she says, everything we create either goes back to the earth as food or as poison. And I think that's a very apt understanding to look at fashion in the raw material level in terms of its sustainability to this earth. I purchased a, a handmade organic cotton t shirt that was indigo colored. And I was instructed that the shirt cannot be washed in a machine. It had to be mm -hmm. hand washed separate from other pieces of clothing. And my brother hasn't worn it yet because he doesn't want to hand wash it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's no, there's no ability to, ha to just throw it in a washing machine. And so in terms of scaling that kind of product for consumption, there's also mm -hmm. a need, I think, for scaling its maintenance, the maintenance of mm -hmm. consuming that kind of product beyond just wearing it, but also keeping it clean and available for long-term wear. And so to the extent that our washing machines aren't built to accommodate, you know, that kind of preservation of those products, it's going to be a disincentive. And mm -hmm. so where can we build relationships on the cleaning and maintenance end? Yeah. So, I mean, in that specific instance, that's probably like a more raw indigo dyed. And if they don't have like some sort of chemical sealant at the end that kind of keeps the color in, um, it will ultimately fade, right? And that's just like the nature of indigo. As someone who is not a producer of clothing myself and is not an expert of like dyeing and like that whole back end process, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer, but I will say there are a variety of different um, practices on the market of how people are balancing the use of natural dyeing materials, but doing it in a way that is more conducive to the everyday consumer that doesn't have the capacity to necessarily hand wash their items or do specialized care. Yeah, but I would say there are other instances of indigo because indigo is one of those things like the nature of what it's dyed, but also like the dye itself is sealed, has a wide variety. But again, I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that specific question. Would you be able to respond to what consumers might need to look for when they are considering making purchases of eco-friendly garments and products? Yeah, most definitely. Um, there's a few different things I would keep in mind. First, I could start by talking about the raw material level. Um, as I mentioned before, I would say that natural fibers and fabrics, I'm talking about the linens, the hemps, the wools, organic cottons, etc., are the best for the environment, as opposed to polyester, just because polyester uh, leads to microplastics. So that's the first thing. The next thing relates to dyeing. And so dyeing is often a very industrial process in its own right in terms of emitting harmful chemicals, not only to water runoff, but also our skin being the largest 
organ in our body, it could actually be an endocrine disruptor. And so one certification that consumers could look for is Okio Tech Certified. That's spelled O-K-E-O-T-E-X, if I'm not mistaken. And that's a very um, high standard of, you know, things being dyed in a way that is chemically safe and good for the environment. Um, as far as labor considerations, there's certain certifications that a third party that a consumer could look for, like Fair Trade, which um, is a good one. B Corp certified often has a high standard of environmental and um, labor ethics. Um, so those are the types of things that you can look for in guiding your purchases. A lot of the times, smaller brands don't have the capacity for third party certifications like that. So I would just say be mindful of how much information these brands are telling you in their about pages. So they tell you about the factories which they produce in, um, any information about like living wages and the way they treat their workers, any information about the environmental considerations they took into account when producing a product. So I would say brands that are being as transparent as they can. And granted, brands don't have to be perfect. I think some of the best brands are those that are able to say, we don't have all the answers yet, but we're working towards that. Uh, that sort of transparency and honesty is something that I often appreciate because I know that there is often a higher cost for small brands to do all operations sustainably, but something's always a start, right? And I think that just being conscious of having your dollar support smaller makers rather than big corporations is always a better way to go. When you talk, when you use the term sustainable fashion, I'm guessing it's a term that falls along a continuum, right? So one can be more or less but if you don't have to meet a certain minimum level to be defined as sustainable, would you, would you say that's true? Yeah. Here's the thing about sustainability. Everyone's using these, this term nowadays, right? In 2020, sustainability is such a sexy term that everyone wants to be on the bandwagon of. With that said, there is no industry standard of what sustainable means, right? Which makes it a bit tough because consumers kind of have to define it for what that means to them. Everyone has different priorities in terms of what they're looking for. Like for someone who's vegan, and a material like silk or wool might be out of the question, you know? And so, yeah, it definitely exists on a continuum. For me personally, my gateway into the sustainable fashion world was very much through a social justice dimension. I, to be frank, did not know much about the environment, nor did I care much about it at that time. Uh, that's come to change, but... <laughs> Yeah, it very much ex exists on a spectrum. And I think people need to be more educated so they could kind of define that on their own terms and actively look at for certain elements in their own consumption. Before you had mentioned Fashion Nova's rationale for why they're situated in Los Angeles and how they could be close to Kim Kardashian and be responsive to all the, the fashion <laughs> trends that she starts. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that she's she's been involved in helping some people who are incarcerated receive clemency. And so to the extent that like her brand has a particular message that she's sending to her consumers, if one day she were to decide to source her raw materials ethically and have aspirational workers' rights that she's, you know, setting as a standard, does that make her brand more sustainable given the message that she's sending? through her other choices? Um, what sorts of other choices are you referring to exactly? This episode is part of a, a series on beauty, fashion, and lifestyle. And mm -hmm. one of the concepts that we've explored in previous episodes 
is the construction of femininity and、mm-hmm. how these industries have been responsible for constructing a definition of femininity that doesn't necessarily celebrate individual beauty, diversity. It's not inclusive. It's not body positive. It's white Western leaning in terms of its standards. And certainly, when I look at Kim Kardashian, I and then the, her subsequent evolution and her her family's evolution, visually, I see conformity. Right, that's one thing. I don't see them as representative of a brand that celebrates who you are, where you are, natural beauty, for example. To the extent that they are. Propping up a standard of beauty that may be unattainable for most of us—that is certainly unattainable from a cost perspective. If they were to engage in these other practices, would that make them an ethical fashion brand? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those instances where we're kind of looking at a public figure through the lens of how they might have contributed to society's understanding of beauty and femininity.、Um, But in terms of their alignment as a sustainable fashion brand, yeah, I think those—if they were to make those shifts in their supply chain and ethics—very much so.、Um, I think at the end of the day, as much as we can critique the Kardashians of the world of, you know, their personalized decisions, granted they have, you know, chosen to put themselves in the spotlight. I am not one to shame the Kardashians for their personal choices for body modification. I think. That sort of agency over one's own body is one's own choice.、Um, in terms of like a more nuanced conversation of how the Kardashians may have co-opted like black culture and their rise of fame without crediting where their inspirations come from, that is a whole different can of worms in its own set own sense. But yeah, I think if anything, at the end of the day, the conversations on sustainability need to become mainstream. My thing is often these are existing in these alternative spaces and. Sustainability and ethics at this point shouldn't be an alternative、mm-hmm. market, correct? But、um, with that said, I also am very critical of the folks that are kind of co-opting the language of sustainability and ethics, but not actually doing the work. By that, I'm talking about greenwashing, right? A lot of brands these days are throwing around terms like organic, green, but not really explaining what that actually means in practice. And so. We all have to like navigate this balance, I think, in our society. Of we're gonna have to have certain like people who are positioned with just critical mass behind their platforms that can actually open up a conversation where it's not being had. My sort of conversation is like the things that I'm talking about on my platform is not the type of content that like people who might follow them like. I, I'm not to say like we don't exist in multitudes and people can love their reality TV and care about sustainability. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying, like, at the end of the day, my platform is positioned to a audience that is already thinking about conscious consumptions in a lot of ways, whereas their audience may not. But they could be that catalyst,、mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. If anything, I don't know if you're aware, but one of Kim Kardashian's former assistants, her name escapes me, has started like an Instagram account that educates folks on environmental sustainability, and it's doing great. And I think it was very much the touch point that's allowing. A lot of people who are not, you know, interested or knew much about this movement at all to be exposed to it, and so I think we need as many hands on deck for this type of work. I'm glad you brought up the concept of her co-opting because I wanted to bring up cultural appropriation in fashion.、Mm-hmm. 
where do you draw the line between appropriation and reverence? How does one know when one is engaging in cultural appropriation? When it comes to cultural appropriation versus appreciation, I think for one, if you are using a certain cultural motif, um, style, fashion, whatever it may be, that belongs to another culture historically, that has been reprimanded for that motif. And you're not giving credit for one that is appropriation. It's like people try and seem like they are the ones that discovered something or made something cool. I think another major part of it in terms of supply chains, if it is like an actual fashion item, is if you're calling something a kimono or calling something a boho-inspired festival look, but it's very clearly like from Indian fashion, for instance, like that's that's trying to recontextualize something that often has a lot of significance to one culture for kind of just like mass market appeal on another. Uh, think about the use of bindis and like Coachella festival wear, right? The bindi is something that has deep spiritual and historical significance to South Asian culture. And to reduce something to festival wear is frankly uh, irresponsible. And so I think, yeah, that's exactly it. Is, are you actually like vocalizing where the inspiration or source of something is? Is it actively helping that community or is it further displacing them? Are you trying to recontextualize something that you do not have ownership or proximity to in the first place? These are the sorts of questions I think people should be asking. The boho-inspired example, instead of using that language, recontextualizing it, would it be more appropriate just to say Indian-inspired? Yeah, but the other part of it is like, okay, so if you are getting this sort of look where, like, I also think it's like, who is wearing it, right? If you actually have a developed understanding of the source of the fashion, like something like the sari, right? If you actually know the source and you're doing it from a place of appreciation, I personally don't think there's much problem with that. Other people can disagree. And I think that's where there's a lot of subjectivity in terms of these conversations around cultural appropriation. Because for some people, the way they see certain cultural motifs has a lot more significance and they only want to see it on their own community. If they see it on like a white person that they don't think has done the work to really understand the source, they're not going to be happy about it, right? But for me, I don't think that there needs to be cultural stratification per se, but I think we do need to root our practices in authentic appreciation and understanding the source and history. Great. So we've arrived at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I've adapted from inside the Actors Studio called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is... The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think we need to really look at our fights for social justice in a way that sees how our livelihoods and our liberation is all tied to one another. And so when it comes to gender-based oppression, like that's tied to a multitude of other issues. And whether you as an individual don't think that applies to you, in many ways it does. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is grassroots organizing. I'm so lucky to have had the opportunity to continually in the past and even now organize alongside garment workers to see what change and true power looks like. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? To end gender-based violence and oppression... What we could do more of, I think we need to have more difficult conversations of how we can be complicit in these larger systems. 
I think we need to get uncomfortable with unpacking our own identities and how we all have internalized forms of misogyny and other things like that, patriarchy that we need to unpack as a society. I think we need to move from ego to a place of understanding how we're all interconnected. Um, And yeah, I think looking at the world through a lens of gender is very, very apt because it intersects with so many different walks of life and so many different issues. Thank you so much, Aditi, for joining our show today. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Masami, the premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. You can find Masami online at lovemasami.com and share your hair at lovemasamihair on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. And you can listen to this podcast on CastBox. Download it for free and listen to anything. CastBox, the best podcast listening app out there.